a reading from the first letter of Peter, beginning with the second chapter and the first verse. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, what I've prepared for today ended up being more of a homily than a sermon. I share that so you can calibrate both your expectations and attention spans accordingly. This morning, the lectionary had us read once again from Peter's first letter which, as we said last week, was written to a collection of young churches scattered across what was then known as Asia Minor, but is now the nation of Turkey today. But with this passage appointed for today, we're actually backing up from what we read last week, if you recall. Since last Sunday was Good Shepherd Sunday, the end of chapter 2 was appointed for us, likely because it included Peter writing about believers being like sheep who had strayed and, and Jesus being the, quote, shepherd and overseer of our souls. But the dominant theme we find in today's passage is not sheep, but stones. Stones. In the midst of identifying Jesus as a living stone, as a cornerstone, and as a stumbling stone, Peter also refers to the believers, these believers he's writing to, as, quote, living stones. So this morning I'd like to explore how to make sense of this imagery, both in the passage and as it relates to us today. What you need to understand is that Peter is writing to churches of relatively new believers who since becoming Christians have had a pretty hard go of it for the most part. Some were rejected by their families when they converted, of course, while others have endured persecution by the Romans. And I would imagine that some of these experiences may have been pretty different from what they might have envisioned when they first came into the faith. In my experience, it's rare for people to knowingly sign up 
or family rejection or persecution. Instead, it is much more likely that they receive the gospel of the kingdom of God with grandiose expectations of being involved with mass conversions and great miracles, of getting in early on a gospel movement that will sweep through the region to mass revival. But instead, what they've found is that their faith has made them outsiders and marginalized their place in a world that has remained mostly the same as it was before their conversion. Contrary to what they may have expected, the majority of people from their life before are not converting to Jesus, as they in their gospel are more often being outright rejected. And perhaps as a result of these failed expectations, there are even indications that some of these believers are thinking about bailing on the faith altogether. So it is in response to all of this disappointment and frustration of being a first century Christian that Peter's encouragement to them is to compare them to stones. To understand what this image would connote, this image of stones would connote for those reading Peter's letter or hearing it read, we should first remember that the landscape of the Middle East is literally covered with stones. Over there, it's hard to spit and not have it land on a stone. They're everywhere. And yet, for the most part, these stones of the landscape were paid very little attention. Days and seasons and decades would pass while stones would just sit there, right? In fact, the only time they would really become important or useful is when someone was looking to construct a building of some sort, like, say, a house or a temple. However, it is also significant to notice that there were many Old Testament references to stones that Christians had come to understand to be prophecies about Jesus, as Peter lays out in verses 6 through 8. For example, In verse 6, Peter quotes from Isaiah 28, where God promised to lay, quote, in Zion to lay a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. A cornerstone was critical for both controlling the design of a building and holding the whole structure together. So the connection to Jesus and the church here of this metaphor is fairly obvious. But then in verse 7, Peter quotes from Psalm 118 about a stone that would be rejected, cornerstone that would be rejected. And three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, report Jesus explicitly applying this scripture to himself in response to the Jewish leaders refusing to believe in him. So putting all of this together, When Peter compares believers in verse 4 to the living stone rejected by men, to Jesus, Peter is suggesting that they shouldn't be surprised that much of the world and the majority of people seem to think no more of them or their gospel than they think of the rocks dotting the terrain. For the world had thought just as little of Christ himself. Think of all the good that he had done. But even though to the world they may not be worth more than a pile of rocks, 
Peter's encouragement is that in the sight of God, they are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter's use of the word spiritual here on twice, he's using it twice, significant. Because in the New Testament, this word spiritual, pneumatikos in Greek, this word spiritual always connotes the sense of something powerful, but something that is unseen, powerful in an unseen way, something that remains invisible to or unrecognized by the world. In other words, because the believer's life is now hidden with God and Christ, they would do well to give up seeking or expecting glory from the world. And would do better to begin learning to look for their glory from God. Well, as I thought about the relevance of this for us, it specifically brought up for me the subject of religious grandiosity. Religious grandiosity. General grandiosity is the human tendency in our sin to not only crave, but to expect to achieve glory and recognition from the world around us. And while this has always been a problem for humans in our sin, in our society in particular, grandiosity has become more like an epidemic as the subliminal message constantly being sent by celebrity culture is that the path to true life is worldly recognition. That will fill our, our emotional needs. But even within the faith, the delusion of grandiosity is still rarely recognized as sin. All too often, believers therefore unthinkingly project worldly grandiosity onto their faith, onto their faith lives, onto the way they approach their religious life and imagine themselves being part of great things like leading myriads of people to Christ or being used by God for great miracles or, or someday finally being recognized by, for how wise or virtuous or biblically knowledgeable they are. In fact, it is not uncommon for religious grandiosity to be the very currency a church operates on, the primary hope that is held out that, hey, if you really believe or believe harder, then you can really achieve these great, grandiose things and all the world will be in awe. Of course, justified, this is justified by anecdotes of Scripture taken out of context. Like we read, like the verse we read from Jesus today when he taught, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do particular favorite of the grandiose mentality. And the temptation for pastors and leaders to encourage such grandiosity in believers is enormous. Because they, or I should say we, are equally susceptible to grandiose visions of building something that the world or at least other believers will sit up and take notice of. Whether it be a huge church or a huge building or gaining political influence or something else. The best way for a church to achieve all of that, those worldly markers of greatness, is to affirm and encourage grandiosity in its own people. 
But actually, when Christians get caught up in achieving their own glory, we are even more prone to the sins Peter discouraged in verse 1 of the passage today. Malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Furthermore, when Christians are taught to expect grandiose fruit to be borne by their faith and it never comes, it ultimately sets them up to feel like failures, to feel burned, feel discouraged or even disillusioned with the faith altogether. But the pursuit of religious grandiosity also serves as a distraction, I would say a diversion, from what the Christian life is supposed to be about, which is progressing on the journey of character transformation, becoming more like Christ. In Matthew, after Jesus' death and resurrection, but before he ascends, Jesus commissions his remaining disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that he commanded. Well, for every follower of Jesus since then, this is meant to be our focus. Learning ourselves how to observe all that Jesus commanded in reliance on, on his grace and seeking to make disciples of other people. The bad news, for, bad news for our grandiose inclinations is that disciple-making is slow, it is hard, and it is unglamorous. Perhaps that what's, that's what makes it the truly spiritual pursuit it is because it often remains hidden from recognition and accolade. But it's what will actually make a real difference in people's lives in this world. It's where true power, spiritual power, and change is found in the life of discipleship. And that is what believers in the church are called to be about. So today's passage is a call to center our faith lives around the pursuit that God has truly called believers in his church to be about. But to remain on course, we'll have to begin learning how to derive our glory and recognition from an audience of one, from him. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.